Please open your Bibles to the final chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 24. You'll find the uh, notes in this morning's bulletin. And this morning we will um, take a second look of three at um, Luke's account of Jesus appearing to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. I'd like to begin our time by reading Luke 24, 13 to 35. Luke 24, 13 to 35. So read along with me. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? And he said to him, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it was towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So I went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Oh, Lord God, um, the greatest miracle, the greatest truth the greatest reality in, in the history of this universe is that the Lord Jesus lives. He is raised. He is alive. He is risen. And as we look at these two disciples slowly come to realize, understand, believe in this, I pray that you'd give us eyes of faith to see as well, that we might believe, that we might rejoice, that we might share in that life. Oh, Lord God, you are so patient with your children. You condescend to our weakness and to our frailty and our unbelief. We rejoice in this, but we pray that you would give us 
eyes to see and ears to hear, that our hearts would not be slow in believing the scriptures. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. So this is the passage um, commonly known as a stranger on the road to Emmaus. Uh, It's a very well-known passage. Luke alone records it. There is an event in Mark's gospel in the 16th chapter that might be a parallel in 16, 12 to 13. And then again, I will remind you that as we enter the 24th chapter, the final chapter of Luke, the Lord is risen. And yet Luke's presentation of the resurrection, which we never actually see, it takes place as it were off camera. It takes place sometime just before the women arrive, minutes before, because he does not rise until the third day. The third day does not start until sunrise. They're showing up just then. And surprisingly, at least surprising my expectations, as I've been going through Luke's gospel, waiting to get here, I just assumed, man, it was just going to be this big. He is risen. Celebrate, rejoice. And that's not what we encounter. He's risen, but the women are confused. And the angels announce that he's risen. They go back and tell the apostles, and we're told, frankly, they don't believe them. Look at verse um, 11. These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So the women returned to the disciples, the 12, or the 11, pardon. They don't believe them. And then Jesus shows up here. The first time since the cross we see Jesus, except he shows up and he's not recognized. And when he is recognized, he disappears. And then he shows up again in verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts Arise in your hearts, see my hands and my feet, that as I myself touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he's there and they're doubting, verse 40, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have anything to eat? So it's really... Growing to a climax, the Lord will commission them, and starting in verse 44, he will commission and send them out, and the book of Acts will record them going out. But up until then, what we're really seeing is the slow, stubborn, coming to faith of Jesus' disciples. Um, Jesus is not front and center in the narrative, at least not as he will be at the end. And I want you to think, why? why? Why would God do this, and why would Luke record this? What, what's the intentionality? I mean, Jesus is risen. He's done suffering. If he wanted to, he could just appear like he does at the end of the chapter with the disciples. Here I am. Cut out all the middlemen. Cut out all of the, the showing up and not being recognized. You just go straight to the proofs, touch, look, see, give me some food. And yet, verse thirty. Six is not the beginning of this chapter. There's 35 verses before it. What is Luke's purpose in telling us these things? What is God's purpose in having the women and then the disciples and then these two travelers on the road come to faith in the Lord's resurrection in this way? Wouldn't wouldn't it be quicker to bring the disciples on the road by revealing who he is to them? 
Wouldn't it be simpler if Jesus were simply there at the tomb when the women showed up? Why do it this way? I, I think it's intentional. I think there's a very intentional purpose in the way the Lord has orchestrated this and in the way that Luke narrates this. So we're going to look at this text, and hopefully by the end of our time this morning, um, we will come to see why God would go about this in this way. So first, verses 13 to 16, meeting the stranger. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, and while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So first, Luke gives us the setting. He gives us the when, the who, the where, and the what. So the chronology here is tight. He begins, that very day. What very day? The day that began in verse 1 of 24, the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. This is your blank, Resurrection Sunday. This is the day of the resurrection. It's the same day that the women have gone to the tomb. It's the same day they've come back and told the apostles and the disciples. Same day that Peter ran to the tomb. That's the time setting, Resurrection Sunday. Who, who are we looking at here? Now, Luke simply introduces them as two of them. Now, we know that they're not both apostles because we know that there is no apostle named Cleopas. So the them, I believe, links back to verse 9. Look at verse 9. The women returned, remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So two of them, I think, is the rest. These are disciples. These are disciples, one of them named Cleopas, possibly the same Cleopas mentioned in John 19. We're not sure, can't be certain. And one of the things that is important here is Luke's been giving us things in twos now for a little bit. If you remember, biblically speaking, for someone to be a witness, for a matter to be confirmed, there have to be at least two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, for any wrongdoing, in connection with any offense that he has committed only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So we've got our two witnesses to what happens here. And so Luke, in giving the name of one of them again, is, is allowing Theophilus, to whom he's writing, the opportunity to verify, presumably to look up this Cleopas. And we've got two witnesses here, just as there are two women going to the tomb who saw the angel, just as we had three witnesses to Jesus' innocence at his trial. So two disciples. Where? Where are we now? We are on the seven-mile road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now, we're not entirely sure where Emmaus is. Emmaus simply means warm well. It was a common enough name for what we can tell for various towns. Different locations have been suggested. Likely, this is west. Best guess is west of Jerusalem, but we're about a seven-mile journey or about a two-hour walk. People generally walk around three or four miles an hour, so we're looking at roughly a two- or three-hour walk, depending on pace, and that would put these disciples, as men returning from Jerusalem, from the Passover, back to where they lived, presumably. And that's what they assume Jesus is doing as well. They assume he's coming from Jerusalem. So we've got two disciples on Resurrection Sunday. They're walking the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. What are they doing? Now, Luke is emphatic here. He repeats this four different times. Verse 14, they were talking. 
Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, verse 17, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other? These men are engaged in in a very strong back and forth discussion. And what they're discussing is their bewilderment and befuddlement. You can't mix those two words together and make a new one. Um, Doesn't stop me from trying. Um, Their bewilderment at the events that have taken place. And we'll, we'll get a better insight into that when they speak. So they saw Jesus presumably riding to Jerusalem. They were there that week of him teaching in the temple. They saw the trial, the, the condemnation, the crucifixion. They've heard the reports. They're, they're up to date on all the information, as up to date as we are in the text. And they are absolutely bewildered and confused discussing these things as they walk to Emmaus. The what? An intense discussion. So that's the when, Resurrection Sunday, the who, two disciples, where, this stretch of road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, what an intense discussion. And that brings us then to the encounter. The encounter. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Finally now, the first time we've seen the Lord in the text since he's been hanging on the cross and his body was laid in a tomb, Jesus himself, Luke makes it clear, no confusion, it's the Lord himself draws near to them. Um, this is just amazing. He draws near to them, and then we get in verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now this is what's referred to um, in theological circles as a divine passive, God acting on somebody. We've already seen it a number of times in Luke's gospel. In Luke 9.45, they did not understand this saying, it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. Luke 18.34, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And it's matched, verse 16 is matched by verse 31. Their eyes were opened. When I say divine passive, they're not doing this. It's being done to them. They're passive. Their eyes are kept. Their eyes are opened. In both instances, they're being acted upon. And what that means then is this isn't a matter, as some commentators have speculated, they were too excited or they didn't expect to see Jesus. Why didn't they recognize Jesus? Was Jesus looking different? No, we're told. The reason for their lack of recognition is not because Jesus looked any different or anything had been done to Jesus. The reason they didn't recognize them is because something had been done to their eyes. That was, that was where the action took place. Some, some restraint was put on their eyes. Presumably, God kept them from seeing. And God, in verse 31, allowed them to see. Um, which, again, raises that question. Why would God work this this way? Why would Jesus' first appearance in Luke's gospel just be to two people on a walk, and when he shows up, God intentionally doesn't allow them to recognize him? I think think we will see. Jesus has already made it clear in Luke's gospel that spiritual sight is a prerogative and gift of God. Remember when he told the first parable, the parable of the sower in chapter 8, the disciples came to him and they said, what's this all about? Jesus said to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. 
And so even here we see that recognizing Jesus ultimately is not based upon their ability, but God's gift or God's restraint. So that's the setup for the conversation that follows. We're going to look at the first half of this encounter today, the second half, God willing, next week. So the stranger arrives, and they assume Jesus has come from Jerusalem. That becomes clear in verse 18. Even though he doesn't meet them in Jerusalem, um, when they say to him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? So they assume he's another pilgrim. Remember, three times a year, every faithful Jewish man needs to go to Jerusalem to observe the three main feasts. And so they just assume this is another one of these travelers, another one of these visitors who's now returning home from observing the Passover. Um, he doesn't raise their antenna at all. And Jesus, um, now if we move on to the discussion with the strangers, instigates what happens by asking a question. Um, look at verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And then they tell him. So now we have the discussion with the stranger. And, and even though Jesus initiates this with two questions, primarily they're speaking in verses 17 to 24. And then in verses 25 to 27, Jesus takes over. So we've got first their sad account of events, and then Jesus' response. Their sad account of events. And it moves through four phases. First is surprise. Surprise. Um, that, that he has not heard. Now there's great irony here. Great irony here. The reader of Luke knows what's happened. The reader of Luke knows Jesus has risen. Jesus knows he's risen. These men don't. And when Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? What events? They say to him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Well, the reality is what? He is, in fact, the only one. Well, the angels, I suppose, know too. But he, he's, he's the only one who knows what's happened. These people, Cleopas and his friend, are the ones who are clueless. And you just imagine the patience the meekness of our Lord is as they, they don't even know what they're saying. They are absolutely surprised, dumbfounded, if you will, that he has not already heard. And it's deeply ironic because as we're going to see as this text unfolds, they're the ones who are ignorant. They're the ones who don't know what's going on. They're the ones who are misinformed. And Jesus is the one who's both informed of the scripture and of the historic events. They have neither an understanding of the scripture nor of the historic events. Jesus is the one who understands both. So it's ironic, their response. And they stop. After all this movement, they've been traveling, they've been traveling, they stop, and they are sad. Now, I want to help frame these, these disciples. Uh, our Lord will bring them to faith, I believe. But we are not here looking at a picture of faith. We're looking at a picture of unbelief. We're looking at a picture of faithlessness. And Jesus will make that clear. He makes that clear in his rebuke in verse 25. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. And the other great irony here is this. The greatest event in history has just happened. God's son has died on a cross for their sins and three days later, he has risen from the dead. They have all the information they need to understand this. They have, they're up to date with the news from the women. 
and yet they're sad and moping. So they express their surprise that he has not heard. Again, this, this reminds us that the, the death of Jesus was big news. The whole city was buzzing about it. The whole city was buzzing when he entered in. And the city was buzzing as he had conflict with the Sadducees and the priests in the temple. And then his trial and death was big news as well. Which leads then to the description of Jesus of Nazareth. They're dumbfounded. Next, we have description of Jesus. And here's what some writer has referred to as the gospel according to Cleopas. Now, there's some good stuff here, but it's woefully insufficient. Woefully insufficient. But here we get their charter of faith. What do they believe? Who do they understand Jesus to be? He will tell us here as Jesus instigates them further discussion by saying what things. We pick up in verse 19 concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Notice, by the way, both of them are now speaking. So whether they're filling each other in, both of them are participating. They're to use plural um, pronouns. Verse 21, we. So Cleophas begins, but now both of them respond concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So here's their description. It's the identity of Jesus and what happened to him. And they believe he's a man. He's a prophet. He's mighty in both word and deed. Referencing both his teaching, mighty in word, his deeds. He did many notable miracles. He fed the 5,000. He raised two people from the dead, healed lepers. Jesus was, did all of this publicly before the people. He's a powerful prophet. He's a powerful teacher worked miracles and wonders. He was condemned and crucified by the chief priests and rulers. Now, some have referred to this as the gospel according to Cleopas, but there's no gospel here. Gospel means good news. There is no good news. If Jesus is just, as some believe, a prophet, even if he's a mighty prophet, powerful, miracle working, lots of wisdom. If Jesus is just a mighty, wise, powerful prophet, who died, there's no gospel in that. There is no good news in that. Which is why they're sad. What they believe has happened, who they believe Jesus is, has led them to sorrow. And so we go from description in verses 19 to 20 to disappointment in verse 21. Notice the tense of the verb here. We had hoped. That he was the one to redeem Israel. Meaning what? That they're not hoping that anymore. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Oh, the blindness and oh, the irony here. According to Titus 2, uh, 14, Jesus gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are jealous for good works. This is exactly what Jesus had done. And we get an idea, though, of what they're looking for in redemption. I believe the redemption they're looking for is not a redemption from sin, but from Roman enslavement. 
We saw that just as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, did we not? Turn back to uh, Luke chapter 20, no, 19. Luke chapter 19. Verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And in many of the Jews of Jesus' day's mind, redemption, salvation, and that kingdom were united together because the the salvation they were looking for was being delivered, saved from these pagan, uncircumcised Romans who've got Israel under their thumb. And the Messiah will come and he will vanquish them and Israel will be exalted. The nations will come year after year and do homage. And I do believe these things will occur. But that was primarily what they were looking for. If you were here last week, we looked at the Messiah in the Old Testament in advance getting ready for this text. There absolutely are those predictions. Psalm 2 is a... a, Great one to look at for that picture of the reigning Messiah, the powerful Messiah, the the geopolitical Messiah. Oh, it's there in the Old Testament, no doubt. That wasn't the deliverance Jesus had just accomplished. And so again, part of what we see why they're discouraged is depending on what you're looking for from Jesus, what you're hoping he will do, may have a lot of how you respond to him. They were hoping, they had hoped, they weren't hoping anymore, that he was the one to redeem Israel. And again, the irony is huge here. What has he just, he's just redeemed his people. He has just died as a substitute for them. So they go from um, being dumbfounded to their description, to disappointment, finally, to outright disbelief. Uh, Verse 21b through 24 Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So they've they've got the information. They've heard the report of the women. Two witnesses testifying that they saw an empty tomb, angels who reported that Jesus was alive. Their, their lack of faith is not due to a lack of information. They have all the information they need. They just don't believe it. Luke has told us as much in verse 11. The them here being those that the women told These words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. So they've heard the report of the angels, the empty tomb, and that he is alive, and they do not believe. That's why they're sad. That's why they are sad. I just want to pause before Jesus enters in and, and fixes their wagon, so to speak, and just express that this is the challenge we have in our walk with life and faith. Um, We are all interpreters. You and I do nothing every day but interpret. We interpret events. We interpret things in front of us. Two people can encounter the exact same event and interpret it very differently. Um, We we all interpret things. I I use this analogy. Um, Before you think, before feelings arise, 
Before actions happen, you're thinking, you're interpreting. And the analogy I use is if I answer the doorbell and I find a masked man with a knife, depending on whether or not it's Halloween, will depend on whether or not I scream like a little girl and run. Right? Because I have to interpret that event. Even something as jarring and surprising, you'd think, you don't think, surely the adrenaline kicks in. No, you interpret, we interpret. They have all the data that we have, and their interpretation is he is not the one to redeem Israel. He has failed. We'd hoped he was something. That hope was disappointed. And all of that interpretation and misinterpretation and unbelief is why they're sad, why they're moping, why they're discouraged. And they have every reason, every reason to rejoice, every reason to be excited. God is, in fact, doing something, has done something wonderful for them. But because of their wrong interpretation and their lack of faith, they are moping. The scriptures insist that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And that you and I struggle in believing that God is doing good things when things we don't expect and things we don't like happen. And the challenge for us is will we trust and believe God? That God knows what he's doing even when it looks like he doesn't. I mean, probably the most striking example of this, I was just talking about this um, last week with some men, is Abraham. Remember, God tells Abraham to offer up his son Isaac. And Abraham gets up first thing in the morning, and he goes. And God holds him back, and he doesn't do it. But the author of Hebrews gives us an insight to Abraham's thinking here. Listen to Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, whom he had received the promises, was in the act... And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is this. Abraham's dilemma when God tells him to sacrifice Isaac is double. One, it's an abhorrent action. The last thing Abraham wants to do is kill the son whom he delights in and loves. But there's a second dilemma, which is God has already explicitly named Isaac. This particular boy is the one through whom he will have descendants. And so Abraham is faced with this dilemma. And because Abraham is a man of faith, he has faith. He reasons, okay, if God is going to have me kill him, I guess you'll have to raise him up from the dead so that he can keep his word. That's amazing faith. Abraham didn't understand what was going to happen. He, had to, he guessed what was going to happen. God did something different. But he knew God would be true to his word. He knew God could be trusted on. These disciples of Jesus had seen his powerful deeds. They'd heard his teaching. They had hoped he was going to redeem Israel. And when Jesus did what they did not expect, rather than saying, well, we don't understand, but God knows what he's doing, they, they stop hoping, they stop believing, they go home. Well, our Lord has a good purpose here in in joining them. But first, uh, in Jesus' response, we'll look at his rebuke, Jesus' rebuke. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And Jesus is now um, helping explain why it is that they um, are are interpreting this way they are. Now, there's some foolishness. There's a a lack of wisdom, and there's an unbelieving heart taking place. 
Um, this actually also parallels back to the parable of the sower. Remember the parable of the sower, the different soils? Listen to how Jesus describes the good soil. Um, as for the soil that is good, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. So there are some who hear the word and hold it fast in an honest and good heart. These are foolish with slow-believing hearts. That's okay. Jesus is patient with them. Jesus will challenge them. Presumably, they take the rebuke. They don't bristle up and say, oh, hold on now. Who are you calling foolish? Because he goes on to instruct and teach them, which is good. But he begins with a rebuke. Um, this is important for us to understand. They are foolish and slow to believe the scriptures. That's the charge. In other words, Jesus is saying clearly they ought to have known different. They're, another way of saying is their ignorance is not excusable. They don't have a valid excuse. They're, they're responsible to know this, which is why they're foolish and slow to believe the scriptures. You don't say that to someone if it's not their fault, if it couldn't be helped. And he goes on to say, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And we saw last week, did we not, how the Old Testament prophesied, predicted, even the very first prediction of the Messiah coming in Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. There's the suffering of the Messiah. You, no, sorry. He shall bruise your head. There's the triumph of the Messiah over the serpent. You shall bruise his heel. So even in that prediction, Messiah's heel is going to be bruised. The seed of the woman will be wounded even as he crushes the head of the serpent. And it's passages like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12 make it clear that Messiah is going to suffer, which is point two here. The Christ must first suffer and then be glorified. First suffer, then be glorified. And they were guilty of what we are guilty of frequently, which is we, we just pay attention to the news we like. Does God have a good, encouraging word for us? I like that. I'll quilt that and put it on the wall. Does God have a challenge or rebuke, indictment, conviction? We don't generally put those up on the wall as much, do we? Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. I have not seen that framed on a wall, right? <laughs> it's true. No, we tend to gravitate towards, I know the plans that I have for you. We'd like those passages. Well, they liked the triumphant Messiah passages. They liked the Israel will be exalted passages. And they had overlooked and ignored the suffering Messiah passages. The Christ must first suffer and then be glorified. It's the cross before the crown. It wasn't that their belief that the Messiah would come and triumph and exalt his people. He will do that. They just ignored the other bits, and they were responsible for it. And then, for the remainder of their walk to Emmaus, they get to have a Bible study with Jesus. This is absolutely incredible. We go from rebuke to instruction. And I, I wish Luke had elaborated further, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them all. In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I, I don't know what passages he went to last week. I took a stab at showing, well, here's, here's where I'd go. Um, 
they have the living word of God interpreting. Literally, the word here for interpret is also used to translate. I mean, it's really to get the meaning out, to explain it to them, the things about him in the scripture. I want to pause and make one or two other observations here. One, that assumes the scripture has a meaning, right? You can't explain the meaning if the scripture can mean something to you and something to you and something to me, and this is my truth, this is what it means to me. This assumes... The rebuke assumes and the instruction assumes a static meaning that doesn't change, right? You can't be responsible for not understanding it if it can't be understood. They don't respond to Jesus, well, that's, that's your reading of the text, do they? No, the, the scripture has a meaning. The rebuke presupposes that. The instruction presupposes that. And we need to make sure we're not foolish and lazy. We need to struggle to come to that meaning, what the meaning is. But Jesus assumes the text has a meaning. There's a right meaning. There's a wrong meaning. And he gives them the right meaning about everything in the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And presumably shows them from those things that the Messiah must First, suffer. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And that's why he spends his time with them. They still don't recognize him. Next week, they'll recognize him. Right now, they don't. And I want to pause in our study of this text here as we draw to an end and try to answer that question I asked at the beginning. Why, why would Jesus do this? Why would God keep them from seeing him? Why would Jesus... Take this approach to, to bringing them to faith in the resurrection. And, and here's the big sort of circle thing at the bottom that I've come to be convinced is the answer. And it's, it's astounding. It's this. Jesus intends his disciples to trust in his resurrection, not through theirs or others' experience, but through the scripture. Jesus intends his disciples to trust in his resurrection, not through their or others' experience, but through the scripture. That's the common theme here, right? The women go to the tomb. And what do the angels say to them? The angels say to them, remember what he said. And they remembered what he said and they went back. In other words, the angels point them to his words. And Jesus could have said, now come on guys, if those two women came, two women, you got two witnesses, shouldn't you have listened to them? Why aren't you trusting the women? Jesus doesn't push along those lines. He pulls the thread differently. You should believe the scripture. The rebuke is not, you guys are a bunch of chauvinists who don't believe women. The charge is, you don't believe God's word. You need to understand the scripture. And the simplest thing in the world would have been for him to be, look, it's me. Clearly I've risen. He wants them to come to faith in the scriptures. Predictions that the Messiah would suffer and die. And when he stands in front of the apostles and they're still doubting, look at this, verse 41, while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, these words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
What accounts for these men's radical change, their boldness, their courage in the book of Acts? I think two things. And we've seen the first right there. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures. The second, verse 49, is the promise of the Holy Spirit who is coming. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. And when we go into the book of Acts, they, they will certainly put themselves forward as witnesses. But their argument for Jesus and the resurrection doesn't hinge primarily upon their witnesses. They don't just sort of, we got 15 people here. We're going to bring them out one by one. Tell them what you saw, Thomas. I saw Jesus. Tell them what you saw, Simon. I saw. They don't do that. They'll say, we're witnesses. And then they go immediately to the Old Testament text, arguing that the Christ has been raised from God's word. So, so why doesn't Jesus just start with the final event here in Luke? Because he wants them to see their reason they did not believe in Jesus and his resurrection is because they did not believe the Old Testament text. And they wouldn't really be prepared to believe in any sort of saving, significant way until they understood the text. In fact, turn back with me to chapter 16. I think we simply see here a perfect illustration of the truth that Jesus tells to the Pharisees in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember, the rich man and Lazarus are living in the same place. Lazarus is poor. He's covered in sores. He's outside the gate. The dogs are licking his sores. Both men die. I just want to pick it up as the rich man, um, after first pleading that he might have some relief, Um, appeals for his brothers. Pick it up in verse 27. And he said, that I beg you, Father, to send into my father's house. He's talking to Abraham. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let him hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What has Luke given us a vivid illustration of? First, the women, then the apostles, then these men. Someone has, in fact, risen from the dead. Risen from the dead. And because of their failure to understand and believe the prophets and Moses... They do not accept the resurrection. Therefore, what is the correction to enable them to believe, to enable them to receive and understand who Jesus is? They need to wrap their heads around the scriptures. That's the means that they come to faith. And this is, this is to be radically encouraging for us because what that means is we're on a level playing field with them. You have not seen the risen Lord, but you have the testimony of scripture just as they did. God's people have always come to faith through the same means, hearing and responding to God's word in faith. And so even here with the apostles and the disciples, we see that the primary place of evidence and the weight of authority and certainty is placed not upon their experience, but upon God's word. Let me show you this in one other place in 2 Peter. This is absolutely astounding. It may be tempting to want to have an experience. And I hear people, if I could just talk to God, just have a cup of coffee with God. Keep in mind what Jesus says. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if someone rises from the dead. 
And Peter writes 2 Peter knowing he's about to die. And he writes the letter so they can remember the things he's taught them. Pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 1. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them. You're established in the truth that you have. I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. That's what this letter is. That's the effort Peter took so that they could recall these things. He wrote them a letter. They could pull the letter out and they could read it. And then he, knowing false teachers are coming, and most of what Second Peter deals with is false teachers, he, he lays this out. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What's Peter referencing? Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, so Peter's saying, if experience matters, I have got the top tier experience. Not all of the apostles got to go up on the mountain, just Peter, James, and John. I'm one of three. I saw Jesus glorified. I heard God the Father audibly speak. Okay, look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. What I think Peter's just said is if I can put my real, true experience of being on the Mount of Transfiguration, hearing God the Father talk, seeing Jesus glorified, and I got scripture, which one should I put more trust in and more confidence in? We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter, in leaving them, doesn't want them to put their tr- faith and their trust in some esoteric experience. There may be experiences. Peter's experience is legitimate. He'll go on to talk about the false teachers who have false experiences. But the Word of God is sure. And Jesus brings his disciples to faith primarily through the word of God, not primarily through touch me, poke me, prod me. Even when he does that, they're still unbelieving. He has to open their minds. So so the final word I would have for you is this. You have, you and I have the same word. We even have more. They didn't have Luke's gospel. We have Luke's gospel. Will you believe the scriptures? Will you come to believe Jesus is who the scriptures testify he is, both the Old Testament and the New. Will you receive him as your Savior and Lord? Will you bow down before him in homage? He is risen, and he has not left himself without a witness. We have the same word. We have the same surety and certainty. And we have the same responsibility. And there can be no excuse. Let's pray. Lord God, help us, give us hearts that will hold fast to your word. Um, If we are foolish, if we are slow to believe, Lord, I pray that you would um, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would um, soften our hearts, 
Help us to receive and accept the testimony you have given and not demand something other. Lord God, you have done the most amazing thing in raising your son. The best possible news is for us. Would that we would believe it. Would that we would receive it and live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen.